this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast with me amit barua your host for this episode It's been a little more than 2 years since Myanmar's general staged a coup and ousted Aung San Suu Kyi and her National League for Democracy from power. A bloody civil war is raging in the country with independent estimates suggesting that the military junta had killed nearly 3000 civilians and jailed another 18000 since the 1st of February 2021. More than a third of Myanmar is not under the control of the military. a top junta functionary admitted recently martial law regulations have been extended to another 37 townships where military tribunals can try and sentence offenders on charges ranging from treason to spreading false news international action against the junta has not stopped the country's generals from launching air strikes against resistance forces Russia, China and India continue to engage the junta lending it a degree of respectability. ASEAN has little to show in trying to get its member state back to the democratic path. Later this year, the junta led by senior general Min Aung Hlaing is threatening to hold elections. Will they carry any credibility? To discuss what's going on in Myanmar, I'm joined from London by Avinash Paliwal, associate professor in international politics at SOAS. University of London. Welcome to the In Focus podcast, Avinash. Thank you for having me here, Amit. It's my honor. Avinash, please tell us what do you make of the current situation in Myanmar? Amit, Myanmar is a broken country at this point in time. It's as you described, there's a bloody civil war that is raging and all of it or most of it was avoidable this was not an inevitable outcome given the last given the democratic and illiberal but a democratic and electorally inclusive process that we experiment that we saw take place between 2011 and 2021 right now the social contract between the state of myanmar and its citizen remains completely broken it's deeply compromised there is absolutely no legitimacy or acceptability in most pockets of the country for the junta the military junta that is expectedly and unfortunately running the country you know using a lot of violence and a lot of coercion and the and raising money essentially used you know being enmeshed in the illegal trade that has defined come to define the political economy of Myanmar and its adjacent countries uh, with a golden triangle uh, at its heart so we are looking at a very very difficult situation where a military junta is basically preventing basic expression of political and social expression in india's neighborhood so avinash what is your sense i mean we do see uh, you know a lot of resistance a lot of fighting between the junta and uh, you know democratic forces which is perhaps uh, something new in this round of martial law for myanmar how, how do you think uh, this um, battle is going to play itself out at this stage amit the concern is that this is going to be a very prolonged fight this is going to be a prolonged fight for two or three different reasons right one within the resistance there are various degrees of factionalism that are playing out the 
main muscle that is being provided to the democratic pro-democracy resistance has been provided by ethnic armed outfits which were already engaged in a in long running but low intensity insurgencies against the state of Myanmar even before this coup occurred right whether it's the Chin National Front the Kachin Independence Organization the Karen National Union the sh- multiple outfits in Shan State Kareni uh, there were this this you know or the war state for that matter the united war state uh, army a lot of these groups have been at odds with the idea of a union of myanmar ever since myanmar's independence in 1948 and these are the groups some of which much more active and much more capable than others they have been providing the military muscle primarily to the national unity government that formed in response to the coup and that kind of pitches itself as the legitimate people's government of Myanmar and continues to hold the the Myanmar seat in the United Nations the problem here is that a lot of these ethnic armed outfits had deep reservoirs of skepticism and conflict with the NLD run Aung San Suu Kyi government when she was in power between 2015 and 2020 so there is a lot of mistrust among a lot of the forces that are fighting against the junta they are coming together with only one point purpose and that is to oust or to create conditions for a collapse of the military regime itself that does not mean that they have resolved their internal conflicts or internal contradictions that have a deeper longer history and that is one of the key reasons why the resistance is unlikely to succeed anytime soon they are just there are, there are too many fissures in that space that's one reason there is also a military aspect to it right the main source of violence the main method of violence that the junta is using to deliver it against anyone who sees who it views as an adversary which is a lot of people is either by burning villages to raising villages to the ground literally burning people alive or else using air power when the soldiers can't do the job on the ground without you know with the confidence that there is no anti air power assets in the battlefield that are accessible to the resistance so there is a military dimension to it as well that the junta can continue to deliver violence through the air and where possible through brute sheer force of you know just burning people villages to the ground and this is something which has that which is can continue to take a toll on the battlefield on the resistance as well and there is no end in sight the lot of the resistance groups who are fighting including the nug they have failed they've tried and they've failed to procure anti air assets which possibly if they do in the future might be a game changer at least in a military sense if not a political sense on the one the third point that i want to assert in terms of why this is likely to be a prolonged battle amit is because the junta itself continues to receive structural support material weapon you know material support and financial support from countries like china and russia now china has diversified its approach uh, its policy it engages with different ethnic armed forces as well but it is ensuring some degree of financial viability for the junta as it stands under the leadership of minong lang but the real game changer here is actually the russians and this is something that often goes unnoticed in this part of the world it is literally the russian military muscle that is ensuring a continuation of violence by the military junta and in this situation the junta find itself on the same side of history with russia which is completely isolated from its western interlocutors its western counterparts and seeks solace and seeks partnership wherever they can build 
for the Russians, they get easy cash by delivering weapon systems, you know, from fighter jets to small guns, small arms to the junta. And that alliance is unlikely to be diluted anytime soon. So even if the military is corrupt and ineffective as a fighting force, they still have enough weapons and enough people to use those weapons against the people of Myanmar to make sure that this is this will be a very long-run, prolonged battle, a stalemate of sorts in which no side is likely to end up winning a comprehensive victory in a military and a political sense anytime soon. Avinash, before I move on to, uh, you know, asking you a little more on foreign policy and Myanmar, uh, you know, where Myanmar is situated in it, i just like to, you know, pick your brain on one other issue, uh, which, uh, you know, I'm interested in uh, eliciting your views, which is the following, that Aung San Suu Kyi tried hard to make it work with the military generals. Uh, in fact, uh, she became quite unpopular and her dealing, uh, you know, uh, her dealings uh, about the Rohingyas, for instance, attracted a lot of criticism. So would this latest uh, February 2021 coup suggest that any kind of working arrangement or power sharing arrangement uh, with with the Burmese army or with the Myanmar army is not possible now for any democratic party to engage in in Myanmar? The last, the events, the situations since the coup in February 2021 indicates very clearly that such a compromise, such a coexistence is highly unlikely, Amit, going into the future. Of course, this is politics, this is conflict. We are still in the early phases of this chapter of Myanmar's civil war. And let's see how this plays out over the next 12 months to be able to assess whether some sort of a coexistence is possible or not. I'm not discounting the possibility of an internal coup against Menonglang within the Yunta. There is considerable discontent in that space, which is quite opaque, which is difficult to put a, put a pin on, put a finger on with accuracy given the lack of information. But there has been a history of coups within, not just against the civilian government, but within the military uh, of Myanmar as it happened, especially in 1992 when Than Shui basically ousted Senior General Song Mong in a silent kind of palace coup to take charge of the situation within the military. So that is something which we cannot discount. And it depends on what the new leadership, if it ever comes to power within the junta, how do they approach these questions of change and reconciliation? Now, going back to your question of Aung San Suu Kyi's challenge about dealing with a politicized military, look, Suu Kyi was always a threat, a political threat to the military. In fact, even when she came to power you know, with a very powerful, very popular electoral mandate in 2015, there were concerns that this would be a mandate that uh, Minong Lang, then a senior general, will simply not accept. But he accepted it at that point in time, given his position within the military, given his own kind of the international equations as they were, uh, but that relationship between the general and the lady has always been highly strained. In fact, the five years in you know of Aung San Suu Kyi's rule is defined by two things: uh, one, the NLD under her command trying to outbid the junta on on the nationalist plank, right? She was trying to be much more bamar and much more Buddhist than the junta itself. And this was quite visible in her response, not just to the 
uh, Rohingya crisis in which she very much sided with the narrative and the logic coming out of Nepitos table, but also on the peace process with different ethnic armed organization, the centerpiece of which was the national uh, ceasefire agreement introduced in 2015 by Aung San Suu Kyi's predecessor, uh, Tan Shin. So here is a lady who's trying for to deepen democracy, deepen civilian supremacy, but on an illiberal, ethnic, religious, nationalist plank. And this is something that really made the military Minonglang deeply insecure because this is a very enduring feature of Myanmar's politics. If she's able to convince a lot of people of her viability or you know her endurance as a political leader, that would that actually did credibly threaten to dislocate the military's political power, just like we are seeing right now, or we saw right, uh, over the last year in Pakistan, where Imran Khan really threatened the military of Pakistan in a political sense, in a very fundamental sense, right? And the formula of coexistence that you hinted at, and perhaps that could be that perhaps could re-emerge as a point of conversation in future, is the constitutional formula wherein Aung San Suu Kyi wanted to do away with the clause that 25% of the parliamentary seats are guaranteed for the military in in the parliament of, of Myanmar under the 2008 constitution. The Kind of a the caveat to this twenty five percent reservation for military came with the fact that for any amendment to pass or for any bill to become law in Myanmar, it required a seventy five percent plus acceptability on the floor. Now you cannot have that without agree without having the generals agree to whatever policy plan that you have or whatever bill that you have to propose. So effectively, even the two thousand eleven to two thousand twenty one period. Uh, during which the 2008 constitution came into effect was de facto, you know, it was uh, de facto favoring the military. It was a democratization period. It was it was much better than what we had seen till that point in time. But it was not really the kind of uh, equal contract between the equals, so to say. And this was Aung San Suu Kyi's core fight during her tenure. So given that turbulent history, given those inequalities, and given what has happened since February 2021, I don't foresee an easy solution. And in recent times, what we have also come to observe is the fact that just last week, the National Defense and Security Council when in Myanmar, when it met under the leadership of uh, Min Aung Lang, the, the chief, uh, they admitted that they actually cannot hold elections as they plan to do or as they announce that they will do this year simply because they don't have the administrative capacities and control, political, territorial control in most parts of the country to actually execute that electoral exercise. So this actually gives us a pretty good sense of how the situation actually is. There are no winners emerging, no clear winners emerging as of now, either in a political sense or on the battlefield itself. Uh, Avinash, coming to the foreign policy dimension, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, very clearly about the Russian role. I would also like to ask you about the Chinese role. I mean, um, uh, they perhaps uh, have a more nuanced approach to Myanmar, as you pointed out, and they have, you know, traditionally engaged multiple players in Myanmar. So what is your sense? You know, how far will the Chinese go in shoring up support? And interestingly, when uh, the, the United Nations Security Council, uh, you know, passed its resolution on Myanmar, three countries abstained. One was, of course, Russia. Uh, the second was China. And the third was India. 
So before I come to India, I'd like to ask you about, you know, the Chinese especially and how far are they willing to go in their support of uh, the military junta in Myanmar? Amit, the core driving factor of Chinese foreign policy towards Myanmar is securing its borderlands, right? This is a country which has seen considerable conflict historically. And I'm going by historically, I mean, to the 50s and 60s in the in the Yunnan, Myanmar or Yunnan, Burma borderlands. And ever since the, the arrival or the rise of Deng Xiaoping in, in Beijing, there has been a consensus of sort that you want to keep your border peaceful and calm. And if for that, if for that you need to support you need to deal with the junta, then you need to deal with the junta. And if for that reason, you also need to engage with ethnic armed outfits that straddle along the China-Myanmar border, then so be it. What this has done, especially after the 1988 coup when India took a adversarial stance against the junta and took a very proactive pro-democracy stand and supported the pro-democracy movement, the Chinese were digging in deeper. And that allowed China to really expand its economic footprint in various parts of Myanmar, not just in its border areas. By the time, and, and this was a process that continued to deepen till the, till the announcement of the China-Myanmar Economic Corridor as part of the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013, uh, between 2013 and 2015, right? So there is an ambitious element to it that, you, that China wants to import or wants to connect Rakhine State with Yunnan for the development of Yunnan, but there's a very clear security element to it as well. So what the Chinese have done, given the his, given how pervasive their influence has been, and when I say influence, it's not about some political agent from Beijing coming and asserting, uh, dictating foreign pol- you know, policy objectives to Nepito, but simply there's a lot of Chinese products in, in Myanmar's markets. You know, a lot of ethnic armed organizations simply rely on arms and cash flows that are connected to China, Chinese financial ecosystems, right? Even with both in the legal space and the illegal space. So, so that is the kind of levers that China enjoys. And that, that policy drive of just having a defensive approach towards Myanmar has continued since 2021. China is not invested in, it's not interested in actually shoring up the junta in a way that would uh, be seen as complicating China's own, the, the perception of China within the people of Myanmar, amongst the people of Myanmar. So it has kept a very, it has kept an open approach in that sense. It has engaged with it and continues to support the Arakan army in Rakhine. It is engaging with the Kachin Independence Organization in Kachin State. These are places with very high concentration of Chinese economic and geostrategic interests, including rare earth minerals, uh, access to rare earth minerals in Kachin. And it continues to engage politically and in a financial sense with all these ethnic armed outfits that resist the junta, while at the same time also supporting the junta in a diplomatic and material sense. What has happened, and this is where Russia becomes a bit more critical, is it is the Russian weaponry which is giving the teeth to the junta in executing the violence that it is. It's not the Chinese GF-17s. They're actually not flying due to technical problems, but it's Sukhohi's delivered by Russia that really give the might that the junta is receiving. So in a kinetic, in a routine sense, uh, how violence is being delivered today, Russia is actually much more important. And you can see a degree of competition between Moscow and Beijing in, you know, in, in show, not in showing up, but in having some degree of presence 
in NAPIDO and its calculus in that sense, because it also allows these countries to kind of extend their influence in shaping the politics of ASEAN and wider Southeast Asia itself. So this is my view on China. This is a country that will continue to hedge its bets. This was a country which was very happy to deal with Aung San Suu Kyi because it viewed Aung San Suu Kyi as a leader which was bringing different people together. China was actually not very pleased with the with the coup when it did happen. Uh, people believe, observers, observers believe that uh, Beijing had advance notice, uh, but it does not have the influence that many believe it does in Nepito to stop Minonglang from actually exercising his right to undertake a coup as a military leader at that point in time. So we are seeing at we are also seeing the limits of Chinese part to, on on that count as far as Myanmar is concerned. It's you know it, it it could not assert itself in a policy sense and in a political sense at that point in time. So it continues to hedge its bets, and I think that's likely to be the case in future. Avinash, I'm going to save the India question for last, if I may. And I'd just like to ask you about ASEAN. Do you think uh, the organization we know, uh, you know, it has uh, multiple countries with multiple interests and political systems. Is ASEAN in any position to influence Myanmar's behavior? ASEAN has tried has undertaken some very honest diplomacy, Amit, as far as Myanmar is concerned. Right, This is a kind of a platform which never enjoyed the kind of diplomatic heft that people are expecting it to to kind of assert in Myanmar's war-torn landscape. ASEAN has never been, you know, this is this is an organization which is much more invested in ensuring smooth people-to-people connectivity within the Southeast Asian theater to make sure that the economies run smoothly because there were economies which succeeded very well, right? The, the East Asian tigers, as you know, Singapore, Malaysia, and they wanted to make sure that their economic success does not get stymied by geopolitical competition or uh, within Southeast Asia kind of political festering, political problems. And they have succeeded to a considerable extent as far as that is concerned. But this is also an organization which has failed to shape the domestic realities of the member states along political lines. You know, it is it is an institute, it's an organization which does not or cannot actually make a country more democratic because that's what most or more or even all of its member states would prefer to see. And that is in the first place not the case. It's a, today, since February 2021, we know that not all ASEAN member states actually either care about democracy and authoritarianism given their own kind of political make domestically. And they don't have the will to actually have a consensus and to impose that consensus in Myanmar and basically turn the clock back on the coup since 2021. They did come up with a five-point consensus in, in you know, after en- engaging with the leadership of the military junta in Myanmar with Min Aung Lang. But what we have seen over the past few months is that this diplomacy that ASEAN has, in- has conducted has actually diplomatically empowered the junta rather than empowering anyone else within that country, Right. Uh, and this has led to increased frustrations within ASEAN member states. And a good case to actually compare and contrast these divisions within ASEAN uh, that, that explains the impotency, the diplomatic impotency of this uh, of this organization is the difference between Indonesia, Indonesian approach towards Myanmar and that of Thailand. Right? Thailand is not interested the way it was in the past to sponsor um, any sort of cross-border violence into Myanmar as of now. The, the Thai military's 
very politicized itself, is pretty okay to deal with the Burmese junta. They're connected by political economies of that region. And that is something, that's an ecosystem they don't want to dislocate. Indonesia, which does not share a border with with Myanmar, has been one of the most vocal critic of the junta and the most vocal, uh, you know, voice that raised the frustrations of ASEAN in, and its inability to actually deliver. But the fact that it does not share a border with Myanmar has kept it completely handicapped in actually making the junta or making Minonglang deliver on the promises he made to the ASEAN as part of the five-point consensus, right? Uh, it is actually not a consensus. These are just five points that emerged on a piece of paper and then largely forgotten in Epito. So we can see that those issues are quite playing out. They're playing out quite in the open. Those, those, those failures of ASEAN are quite visible. They were visible to regular observers of ASEAN even otherwise. But Myanmar makes it a particularly glaring case of ASEAN's lack of inability to actually deliver on these issues. Avinash, before I let you go, I'm now going to ask you about India. Uh, in November 2022, uh, India's Foreign Secretary uh, Vinay Mohan Quatra uh, went to Myanmar. And in the brief statement that was issued after his visit by the Ministry of External Affairs in Delhi, there was no reference to the D word, I mean democracy, and there was no reference to even an E word, which is elections. So is it the case that India has bought into the Myanmar junta's narrative and the need to engage it for its own security reasons? We know these reasons. And essentially, it's also to keep China at bay. You think that's the narrative India has bought into? I think, I don't believe, Amit, that the that Indian officials are convinced by the narrative that is coming out of Nepito. That's one thing. It's, you know, uh, I think they're taking a very hard, a very cold look at the situation on the ground. And that the situation and the cal- the assessment, New Delhi's or South Blocks to be precise, assessment is that this is going to be a long conflict. This is going to be, you know, Minong Lang has opened a can of worms that will continue to shape the battlefield of Myanmar in an aggravated sense, so to say, uh, for years to come. And India has to take a call whether to intervene properly or not. And given India's larger geostrategic landscape in the neighborhood, given the situation that we are facing with China in Ladakh, in Arunachal, and elsewhere, given the situation that we are facing in Afghanistan, Pakistan, given the meltdown in, in Sri Lanka, given the forthcoming elections, which are likely to prove very difficult for Sheikh Hasina in Bangladesh, do you really want to enter and do you really want to have an interventionist posture, both in a political or in any other sense? No, I, I don't mean interventionist, Avinash. I'm just saying, you know, some reference, you know, while dealing. Uh, I mean, every government in India has dealt with uh, uh, the junta in uh, Burma. I'm just saying any reference of being missing, do you think that sort of you know, weakens India's case, especially when it, uh, you know, has taken global leadership at the G20 stage. Yes, I mean, there is a very clear case to be made that, you know, India is not using its offices anymore to assert, you know, to even demand, uh, you know, even pay lip service, so to say, to democracy or elections, as you just noted, right? The latest visit, none of these things really featured high. And this was quite in contrast to the first visit by previous Foreign uh, Secretary, Mr. Shringla, who did mention these words and he did visit after after the coup. I think, again, the drive here is, it's this is not into, you know, it's a very defensive strategy, Amit. And 
India's main concern is to make sure that these conflicts don't spill over into its own northeast, right? There is a lot of refugee flow that is happening in Mizoram and Manipur right now from Sagang and from Chin State. There is, you know, in fact, uh, there are over, th- I think, cumulatively, we are looking at anything between 50 to 60,000 Chin refugees in, in Mizoram. Uh, and you can see it's the Mizoram state government that is actually offering them support rather than anyone else. So there is clear concern that you need to have a defensive strategy and you cannot find any sort of a solution to Myanmar's political problems without engaging with the junta. So that's one element to it. Now, has this succeeded? I would argue actually no, because the junta is actually arming and paying anti-India rebels, especially Manipur-centric rebels, who have sheltered or taken shelter on the Myanmar side of the border to actually do the dirty business of killing people on their behalf. The the People's Liberation Army of Manipur has been contracted, and there is enough evidence for that, by the junta to actually target the People's Defense Forces in Sagang, in and around Tamu, just near the the Tamu, uh, More-Tamu border. You know, so, so, so those elements have actually been empowered to a certain extent, and Indian government does know that. So that defensive element remains, and that is something that should, that will continue in the future, right? The other thing you mentioned is this whole idea of you know not pushing the junta too much on democracy and and elections to push back the Chinese. Now that too, I'm unsure whether it is bearing strategic fruit given how deeply involved China actually is in Myanmar. So so I mean, once again. Even if you don't say, even if you don't don't push on on political questions and political demands like this, uh, what are you getting in return apart from some degree of, you know, uh, apart from a guarantee that you are not turning the junta against yourself as you did in the late eighties and early nineties, right? This is so. So the expected returns by not pushing these things are actually, you know, it's very defensive. It's simply making sure that there is no spillage of conflict and violence. There already is an increase in drugs. You know, the the amount of drug trade that trade that is happening through Manipur and Mizoram has actually shot up considerably over the past two years. So that is already a problem at your hands. Do you want a reignition of armed violence in Nagaland and in in Assam, for that matter, or for that matter, in Manipur? And this is the basic brute calculus that India comes down. You know, India's policy making establishment comes down to. Is this in contravention to India's larger goals in the G20? One can perhaps argue that, yes, India is not sticking to certain principles, you know, of of democracy and having some degree of inclusivity. But uh, the policymakers in India will disagree that they would say that, look, there is limits to what we can do in Myanmar. And our national interests dictate that we have to have a conservative approach towards the junta, uh, even though we don't like what is actually happening. So this is something that we need to kind of be a little bit more cautious about to not sort of, you know, adjudicate India's G20 promises, which have a different dynamic and a different audience that perhaps than what it is doing directly in Myanmar. And also the fact that it will take a lot more than just India saying something against the junta for the situation to actually change. So as far as Delhi is concerned, they've tried it in the past and they failed at convincing the junta to, to change its behavior. And that's unlikely to change even now. If you try doing that, there'll be considerable more, considerably higher costs to pay in a very kinetic sense in the Northeast. And that is something that I don't think any Indian policymaker is willing to, willing to accept, even if the Kaladan multimodal project and all these connectivity projects that India wants to build, uh, they don't come to fruition. That is actually okay 
till the time you obviate the outbreak of or exacerbate political violence in in northeastern states avinash thanks so much for talking to the hindus in focus podcast we've covered a wide range of issues the internal internal situation in myanmar uh, what's developing between the junta and uh, the resistance forces uh, myanmar's own foreign policy situation and uh, india's uh, critical need to engage with uh, the myanmar junta thank you so much uh, for talking to the hindus in focus podcast avinash thank you so much for having me on In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.